Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. This episode is curated by Don Anthony, one of our artists and theologians in residence here at Myers Park Baptist Church. In this episode, we go on a journey to one of the oldest black churches in America, the First Baptist Church of Williamsburg, Virginia. It is First Baptist Church that our exterior of the building here at Myers Park Baptist was designed after. Dawn introduces us to wonderful Miss Liz Montgomery, one of the longtime members and historians at First Baptist Church, Williamsburg. We are also joined in conversation by the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Boswell, our senior minister, Greg Gerald, one of our artists and theologians in residence, Reverend Helms Gerald, another one of our artists and theologians in residence, and myself, Mia McLean, the associate minister of faith formation. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here, and um, this has been a long-awaited moment. Our guest for today is named Miss Liz Montgomery, and uh, she is actually grounded currently in Virginia, but uh, just a little bit of details about her. She's a native of Winter Park, Florida, and came to Williamsburg, Virginia in 1972 and attended William and Mary. Now, first, let me also say this before I move forward. I want you to realize that one of the reasons that we have Ms. Liz joining us today is because of the incredible connection that we see between uh, Myers Park Baptist Church and First Baptist Church in Williamsburg. From my understanding, from a conversation with, um, with Dr. Boswell, with Dr. Ben, um, the external structure of Myers Park Baptist was based on First Baptist Church, which is in Williamsburg, Virginia. And so understanding that connection, I wanted to reach out to find out more details about where is this place in Williamsburg, Virginia, and would someone be willing to share about their history? So this is why we have Miss Liz Montgomery with us today, because she serves with the history ministry at uh, First Baptist Church in Williamsburg. Now, uh, she attended William and Mary um, when she went to school, and uh, she actually came, to, um, D- came from D.C., the D.C. area. She was the first African-American manager at the United Virginia Bank and retired from the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation in Jamestown, Virginia in 2011. She served and developed uh, two nonprofits, the Virginia African-American Forum and the Cirque Charmont. She has also served on the National Association of Business and Professional William, uh, Women of Williamsburg and vicinity. Liz was the program coordinator for the 375th commemoration of the first African-Americans to arrive at Jamestown, and she served on America's 400th anniversary committee. 
Uh, she is also, um, which is dear to my heart, a talented vocalist as well, and has traveled for many years uh, with a jazz band, Bill Doggett Jazz Band. Uh, she is a longtime member, as I mentioned earlier, um, of the historic First Baptist Church, and she serves on the tour history and museum ministries there at the church. So welcome to the platform. That was a mouthful, but there's a light in you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so for having me. Absolutely. Can you share with us um, now the current location at First uh, Baptist Church is not always where the church has been. So can you share a bit about the history of the church? I am delighted to do that. First Baptist started in 1776. That is the date that is listed. That is the date that we're talking about. That, that we have information that we can share. That does not necessarily mean we didn't start earlier. The first Africans arrived at Jam's settlement in uh, 1619. So a lot could have happened between 1619 and 1699 as it relates to religion. So I'm, I'm gonna say that the church has finally uh, settled on 1776, however, Research and more primary source information may guide us to a different date at a different time. As you all may know, if you have any involvement in history, things change as they uncover things. And currently right now, there is an archeological dig ongoing at the original site, um, the first original church site on Nassau Street in Williamsburg. I will say that um, at Green Springs Plantation is where the first service probably may have been had, may have been held. Um, and from Green Springs Plantation, of course, you know, when you're talking about an area, um, a triangle area, and we're talking about the triangle area of Williamsburg. So you're talking Green Spring Plantation to Raccoon Chase, you know, people migrate here, there, and everywhere uh, as their work dictates. And um, from Green Spring Plantation down to where in 1699, everybody moved from Jamestown to Williamsburg because Williams, I mean, Jamestown had burned down three times. So after three times they moved inland which, is, which was Middle Plantation. And today, Middle Plantation is the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. I'm not sure that any of you have had the opportunity to come to Williamsburg before, but if you have come to Williamsburg, you're probably six minutes from my house. I'm about 15 minutes from everything I need to be, you know, everywhere I need to be. At this point in my life, I don't need to be driving my car too many places, okay? Uh, but I will say that um, in that, in that vein, I'm gonna say that from that point, from 1699 to 1776, now can you imagine uh, people of color coming here from Africa, not being able to worship the way you want, how you want, the way you accustom. I have to think about, um, the 17th and 18th century history more than anything else when I'm talking in this particular period. Um, because I can't imagine 
in you. For 50 years, you're going to lay around and do nothing and, and thank somebody for the bread that you eat, the place that you sleep, wherever it might be, or whatever you might be going through. And I will say that this, this area is where slavery, you know, was everywhere. I mean, people were owning people. Can't, I mean, I, I can't even imagine it. But when I think like that, um, and people trying to get away and go to a brush arbor to try to just have a piece of solace, you know, a place where you can go and just sit down and say, thank you for this, or Lord, why is this happening to me? You know, or this group of people. This is how the church started, actually, okay? In a brush arbor, trying to play, pray, trying to flee the, the, the dictates of, of your slave masters. So when you're coming from that sense, you have to think rationally the way you would think today. You know, if anybody bound you and told you you can't do this, that, or the other, you're going to want to do this, that, or the other, you know, whatever that might be, you know. So in that vein, that's where I'm coming from when I'm starting with from grain plantation, from a few just hiding in a brush arbor that they made to just conceal themselves from the masters to preach, to pray, to sing, uh, or just fellowship together. I mean, that's what I'm thinking, you know. Um, then to Raccoon Chase, because that's closer to the town. And the town is Middle Plantation, which today is Colonial Williamsburg. And then from there, there are some masters who probably felt that, you know, well, I have to take this servant with me. This practice that Miss Liz is describing was common during chattel slavery in this country. Some people of African descent who were enslaved were sometimes invited to go to church with their master or mistress if they were performing a service like nursing the mistress's child or accompanying the master to a certain part of the worship experience. Often, if they weren't doing those roles, they were relegated to the balcony of the churches. Miss Liz describes what that might have been like in Colonial Williamsburg. You wanted to take them to church with you at Bruton Parish Church. Well, there was a place for you at Bruton Parish Church, generally in the North Gallery, which is upstairs, generally in the North Gallery. That's what our history books tell us based on the folks who have been writing these books based on primary source information that they have. However, um, if you were somebody close to me, and if you were a decent individual, or if you were a person that, that had compassion and were thankful for the services that you were being given, like nursing your child. Now, a lady <laughs> that uh, won't nurse her own child or refuses to nurse her own child in public, and you choose to have a nurse your child in public at the at Bruton Parish at the Presbyterian Church. You might want that person to sit next to you, and that's really what happened. In some cases, those persons sat on the pews with their masters or the pews right behind them, their masters, and did whatever service that was required. Um, and some of them took them in as family or treated them like family. 
You know what I mean? Um, you know, everybody's not bad. <laughs> Some people do have a good heart. And, and so we have to look at that. You know, we were all given the right to choose good or evil, you know, the way we treat people. So I think that that may have been, I have to think that way, in my opinion, may have been uh, the reason that they allowed them to worship with them at parish. But after Bruton's church, of course, they became um, um, the carriage house on Scott Street. And here again, it is, the legend is, and the research shows that a member of the Cole family offered, was out doing uh, uh, some hunting and saw a brush arbor of people praying and worshiping. And it was horrible weather. He watched and listened, and it is understanding that he offered them the carriage house to do worship, to come out of the cold. But of course, if 51%, at least 51%, this is documented, of people in Middle Plantation, now today Colonial Williamsburg, or Williamsburg itself, um, were of African descent. 51%. You have to think that that must have been um, a person of conscience, a person that cared, the Cole family, I mean, a white person that offered them that carriage house for worship. When that carriage house was offered, they took that offer. From that carriage house came a wooden church that they built themselves. Now you're talking five, 600 black people gathering at one time in a small, location. So you have to think that they'd have to do that different times. They couldn't have all fit in one, that little building in, you know, at one time. So it depends on when you were off, when you were able, you may have sent one member of your family and they could have come back and told the whole family what was going on. You know, we just don't know all of those facts and we don't have enough documentation that describes that fact. We can only assume at this point. And then, of course, after the, the wooden uh, church, then there were several, there were a couple of tornadoes that burned that church down. And then the members of the church decided to build a brick church. Um, the brick church, yes. In 1855, that brick church stood from 1855 to 1954. And then that church was torn down and then the new church on Scotland Street was um, built. Now, why was it torn down? Is because the Rockefeller Foundation and Colonial Williamsburg needed that property, property because they were creating uh, Colonial Williamsburg as it is today, okay? They wanted to restore it to its original, you know, um, to its original state in terms of taverns, the houses, restoring um, buildings. Bruton Parish was pretty much intact, but all of, a lot of other buildings around had, had um, deteriorated. But in the town itself, there were a lot of up and down Ducal Gloucester Street, if you all have ever heard of this street, 
the Duke of Gloucester Street was occupied by a lot of African-American families. So when the Rockefellers came, they started buying up all of the property. So today there are absolutely no businesses and no people of African-American descent on Duke of Gloucester Street because it is now all a museum. The church itself was in that same path, the brick church. So they wanted that church. The trustees at the time decided to go ahead and sell and relocate uh, further away from town and start a brick church. They gave them the property and $130,000. That was in 1954. What Ms. Liz has just described is still plaguing the black church in this country. What we are seeing is the black church buyout where white wealth and big corporation comes into historic neighborhoods and asks black churches to relocate to the suburbs. Most times black churches say yes because of gentrification. Many of their members have already been forced out of the original neighborhood where the church was to the suburbs. And so this is a common thing that is still happening to this day in this country. Wonderful. Um, Ms. Liz, when you spoke about the um, church being torn down at the other location, yes, this is the location where the dig is happening now? Is that correct? correct. And I'll tell you, for the last six or seven months, I'm sure we have been in the paper at least every day. Wow. Every day. Miss Liz excitedly holds up a copy of the Virginia Gazette, which has on the cover page a picture of the archaeological dig happening at Colonial Williamsburg at the original site of the First Baptist Church, Williamsburg. This dig is sponsored by the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, the College of William and Mary, and the Let Freedom Ring Foundation Board, which Miss Liz serves on. It seems like someone in Colonial Williamsburg is interested in telling the whole story after all. Okay, you see the archeological dig? Yes. See what's going on? All right, this came out in uh, Saturday's paper, January 23rd, and it's on the front page. It's a good thing. Oh, we're happy. Uh, Pastor Ben, we are so happy. We don't know what to do. We can't for the church to open. I know the doors are going to be uh, jam-packed. Uh, we're going to be jam-packed. We're not going to be able to fit all those people <laughs> in First Baptist. <laughs> so I'm excited. The church is excited. Um, not, you know, and the pastor is excited. You know, uh, the community is excited because it means that people will come. Um, Build it and they will come. Discuss it, they will come. So there we are at this stage. So I'm kind of interested in, in what it's been like to tell that whole story, to add in the perspective. You know, I, I lived in Richmond for a little while. And when I think of Colonial Williamsburg, I think of it a little bit cartoonish. Um, and... And it's, it strikes me, I mean, having lived um, about two blocks from um, the burial site of Jefferson Davis and the way that Richmond mm -hmm. has kind of 
contorted some of the story, right? That when you start talking about telling the, the chapters that hadn't been told, you can start to get some pushback. Has, what's that been like for you all? Well, um, generally, the hard questions that I can't answer, and it's okay no matter who you are, where you are, if you don't know the right answer, please don't make up anything. So I tell what I know based on the facts, based on the research, and it has been a very enlightening path for me. Um, I have been on the history committee, I don't even know exactly how long I've been on the committee, too long for me to remember. But I, you know, I've been on the history committee for a while and the tour committee, I wrote the uh, curriculum for our tour ministry at First Baptist and started teaching our people what I knew and invited them to bring what they knew to the table uh, so that we can, you know, get thing incorporated so that it would make sense. I wanted everybody to tell the same story. Don't make up anything, just tell the same consistent story based on what we know. And it has been very interesting. Um, we have, uh, uh, some people do push back a little bit, but I think most people are receptive and it's been kind of like an eye opener um, for them, uh, Greg, to know this information. Um, the bell that was uh, restored 2016, the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation uh, and the Lilly Foundation were a part, we got a grant uh, over $75,000 a grant to, to do our little exhibit in the front part of our church that connects with a, an exhibit that they have at Colonial Williamsburg and they have a sign up that they tell their visitors, their paid visitors, we don't have paid visitors at First Baptist, but you just come and give us what you want when you, when you come. And we'll accept every, every dollar. Um, but their uh, visitors there are told if they want to hear the final, the end of that story to come to First Baptist Church on at 727 Scotland Street and get a chance to see the original pulpit set or communion sets or choir uh, chairs that were in the old church. All of this stuff is available infinitely and some of our members uh, way before me had the, had, had the good grace to, and sense to save that stuff and didn't throw it away, you know, or didn't give it away because now we have actual uh, artifacts that people can look at and, and they can, they can't relate to it because there's some of that stuff, they've never seen anything that looked like that, you know. Um, so it's, it's a very good, impressive story to tell and people are pretty engaging, uh, Greg, every time they come, every time they come. Uh, but that bell, that has been the one thing in 2016, when we celebrated our 240th anniversary, that's when people started really, really coming. I mean, and we did it in the month of February. And February the was the kickoff. I mean, the stars came uh, from Dion Walker to Val Simpson to um, Jesse Jackson to Bernard Lafayette. Uh, we didn't get the president at the time. Bar we didn't get Barack Obama. However, he did. We transferred our bell 
to the National Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C. for their opening ceremony. It was historic First Baptist Church bell that was rang by the descendants of Thomas Jefferson. So that, hey, I'm all in. I asked Ms. Liz about if the origins of the church would be honored at Colonial Williamsburg. I wanted to know more about the Brush Arbor experience. And I accidentally said Brush Harbor, and she corrected me and said it's Arbor, A-R-B, um, not to be confused with Hush Harbors. Uh, so I wanted to know what is that and, and tell me more about if those origins are going to be honored there. And, and what that is, is you go out and just gather whatever branches you have. And it's kind of like a weaving. You know, if, if you think about weaving like that, several layers in, of, of woods and branches and just putting them on just to kind of give yourself a shelter, like a, 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 um, like a tent. You know, like you have a tent in the backyard. All right, think about putting four sticks in the ground and putting some wood over top of it like this and branches to try to keep the sun and or the rain and or the wind or whatever out, out of your, off of your space. So that's what that is all about. But we do on certain occasions recreate it uh, on our church site um, for certain events. Um, right at the moment, we don't. However, there is the first pastor of First Baptist Church was Moses. Then it was joined by Gowan Pamphlet. Gowan Pamphlet is portrayed as a, a character at Williamsburg right now by a minister and he's the associate minister at First Baptist. <laughs> and he serves on the history ministry. So what better person do you want out front at CDW getting a paycheck on a regular basis <laughs> and researching the history and telling that story? Gowan pamphlet teller. So one of our members, James Ingram, is the person who portrays Gowan right now. And he is doing it at the archeological site which is right across the street from the carriage house was that they recreated and restored that was owned by the Cole family. So I run by there every few days and talk to him and make sure he's telling the story and making sure that what few visitors do come to Williamsburg during this awful pandemic uh, and social distancing because they haven't closed because most of their stuff is done outside. And so they're able to space people appropriately so that everybody will be safe. And uh, he is telling the story in a way that it just magnifies. It, it is just magnified, it's off the chart because people are so engaged. I, I do stop by, I go by once or twice a week, you know, I don't tell anybody I'm coming. I just, whenever I'm out, if I decide to go to the grocery store and I decide to ride by there and see what they're doing, see who's there. And I drop off a few brochures and, and engage with the visitors, you know, when, when I can, you know, when I can. But that's what's going on right now with that story. I've enjoyed reading some of the history that uh, Dawn has sent us and uh, watched the history video that was prepared about the bell in 2016 on, on your website. And, uh, Really just, it's an incredible story. 
so so grateful to to connect. Um, just to kind of go back to the history, I, when I was first given an architectural tour of our church by our historian who is now deceased, his name was Dan White. Uh, he told me that our church's interior was modeled after First Baptist Church in Rhode Island, but that our exterior was modeled after First Baptist Church Williamsburg. And of course, I had the same association Mia did. I thought, well, you know, First Baptist Williamsburg sounds like a white church. I didn't go do any research. Uh, I didn't know. And uh, Dawn has really brought this to our attention. And if you look at the exterior of our building, it's obvious the the way the architect has taken, particularly the window framing. If you look at the coloring of the Flemish brick, plus the window framing, and then the color of the framing on the windows, the choices of those colorings, it's pretty mm -hmm. clear that it was inspired by First Baptist Williamsburg. So I think mm -hmm. that's such a interesting connection for us. Um, you know, as I read the history, one of the things that really struck out to me as a pastor of a predominantly white congregation was all the different, uh, the, the times that the church uh, after the Southampton County Rebellion was the law that outlawed black preachers and, and put the church in this very difficult situation where it had to have this, I think the way the word you used uh, in the history was nominal ministers, nominal white ministers uh, who are having to preside or come over to the church when in reality the church is still being run by its own clergy. And I was wondering what 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 is that experience of that situation? How is that history told and how is that history remembered within the community? Well, um Yeah, well, we we I, I had to put some of that in in in, <laughs> in the curriculum uh, because uh, that Nat Turner insurrection, and in, I think it was uh, um, I want to say nineteen thirty one. Here again, <clears throat> nineteen thirty one. Yeah. You all check Eight, me out. I think it was eighteen thirty one. Eighteen thirty one. I don't mean yeah. nineteen. Eighteen thirty one. The church had to be. The church was closed after that, mm. and when it for about a year. And then after that, that's when um, when the church was reopened. We the uh, no black per uh, black preacher couldn't get up in the in the in the pulpit, uh, Greg and Benjamin. You know, they had to look like you too. Men, first of all. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, they didn't have no women preachers. They had men up there. Okay, let's be for real, okay? Um so <laughs> the um Ministers had to be white and they came in and they preached and went on about their business, but made sure that nothing, you know, they, they kind of, I mean, they, I'm sure they kept a close ear to make sure that uh, there was no insurrection of any kind going on. Uh, people just trying to take over and go somewhere else and do what they wanted to do. So that, that happened for a while, for a while. And, um, it, it, it's quite interesting how when we tell that story, people look at us like, really? Really? And did the black? Yes, they did. Because they expected at some point, all of the black members expected at some point to still be in charge of their church. They were obeying the law. That was the law at the time. Just imagine me uh, coming to your house in, to your church and telling you, uh, you cannot preach to me. Only the black, I'm gonna send a black preacher over here to take over your church because of something you 
they think you did or something somebody else did. Not nobody in your church, but because he looked like you. You know what I mean? That doesn't even make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But And the laws allowed it to happen. Mm. It happened. Okay, it makes no sense. It happened. And they, and they um, followed the law. And when it was all over, things went back to the way they wanted it to go, which they put Gowan back in that in that pulpit or, or whoever else was there, you know. So that's that's what happened. And we talk about it. I'm glad that you do implement that and talk about that, because uh, yeah. just hearing and seeing that history and knowing the laws that were in place at that time and them having to endure that. And not only that, but three decades later or nearly three days, well, almost 30 years later almost. Mm-hmm. to have the church taken over during the time of the Civil War uh, as a place to house uh, Confederate soldiers, like a hospital. Um, Not only housed them, took care of them. Right. In the hospital on Nassau Street. Yes. You know what I mean? Fed these people. Right. Treated these people. That's the thing to do. You know, that's natural human instinct. If somebody is sick, you take care of them. You don't think to look at, oh, this person is black or white. You just take care of them, okay? That's, if you're a Christian, that's what you do. It's a human instinct. So I have to look at stuff in a realistic way. That's just the way I am personally. So I'm I'm glad that, that God has given me this opportunity to serve on this history committee, uh, um, this, this history ministry and this this particular history ministry, even though it's documented as history ministry and we and this history ministry actually started, I had to go back and pull out some records from 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 <laughs> from our books to find out well when did this ministry actually started? I was down and they were doing a lot of stuff history, but it wasn't officially started. So they officially put it in the books in the minutes of the church uh, in 1984 as a history uh, ministry. So I'm, I'm happy to be a part of the history ministry, but uh, we've got so much more to do. Since the um, history ministry began, was it immediate that they began to do ch- uh, tours of the church or was, it, um, was that at the same time? Was it just information uh, for the Nassau site or did you also do tours at that time? Under the, no, at that, when they first started, no, they didn't. They didn't start until I, no. They didn't, they didn't start the actual tours at that time. But um, Colonial Williamsburg and our then pastor who pastored the church for about 20 years, and his name is Thomas Shields. And I have to throw his name out there because um, before the pastor that we have right now, I'm not sure that Thomas was the only one that thought of our history and our legacy the way he did. Uh, but he was a history major, you know, mm. before he, you know, but a lot of theologians are history majors, you know, a lot of them are, but he was a history major. Then he, you know, the Lord said, I got something else for you to do, I guess. Um, But he is the one that went to Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. And here again, I have to throw this into this, this daughter that's, that's such a, um, she was um, director of African-American interpretations at Colonial Williamsburg. This is one of her first jobs. Um, and she is the one that helped this pastor 
get the grant, the Lilly Foundation grant. And that's how that started. She graduated from high school in 82. This started in 84. And she had already gone to work for them. And that's what she was doing. And she brought it to their attention. And then they realized after much research, they wanted to see what they can do to put a plaque on Scotland Street to at least note that First Baptist started over there in terms of in terms of a building, not started, but the building itself started there, the first building. And um, so he was able to get that accomplished under his watch when he was pastor. And that was one of the accomplishments when I looked in the, uh, during the year of 1983, First Baptist accomplished the following. This is, came out of our record books. Um, the plaque dedication ceremony was held to recognize the site of the old church on Nassau Street, Colonial Williamsburg Restored District. So that's where I got that information and that's when it was um, instituted. And then also that year, an artifact display was donated to the church on the anniversary, the children of the deceased deacons from Nassau Street. They decided People just started, evidently, there was a call to bring anything that you had at your house that might be an artifact that might have come from Nassau Street. And I tell you, I had no idea. People had bricks from the old church. One of the ushers saved bricks from the old church and saved um, some of the uh, uh, wooden artwork that was on the, at the pulpit of the church before the church was torn down. You know, you just never know what people, what inspire people to do what they do. But it was just amazing the amount of artifacts that came out of the homes of members that had been going to First Baptist for years. And these are children and grandchildren today. When I first came there, they may have had maybe a hundred. I counted the book from, looked at the book from uh, 2002, there were about 50. And today I can put my hands on maybe 25. You know what I mean? But these people are still here. They're still telling the story. They're still passing it on to their children and we're keeping it alive. And as they give us more information and they're still doing it, written records that people used to take home because we didn't have a secretary that, had an office, you know what I mean? <laughs> that kept stuff in the box. If you care person of this, you took your stuff home and it got put in the back closet somewhere and people are cleaning up, especially this pandemic. Oh my God, they're, <laughs> they're so bored at home. They're doing all kinds of up, pulling out boxes that grandma left or uh, uncle left or dog, you know, who, you know. So it's a wonderful piece. Uh, for us, but the history ministry actually started in 84, but prior to date in 82 and 83, work was ongoing. And the one person uh, that I can say more than anybody else that has inspired me is um, Marie Shepard. She was one of these people that just started going to the Library of Congress in Richmond. She started going over to the College of William and Mary. She started going uh, over to Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, trying to compile all of 
the details that they had regarding uh, First Baptist. And it has been a wonderful uh, collection. In fact, the first book that has been written by First Baptist is dedicated to Marie Shepherd. That's right. <laughs> it's in that book. Oh, that's the book I sent you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, it's in that book. Her story is phenomenal. Just, it is. Um, her, her, you know, it had been reported to um, the pa the pastor was going to be retiring, Pastor Shields, and mm -hmm. she was really she really wanted to urge him because he mentioned creating a story mm -hmm. for the history, you know, mm -hmm. to go ahead and pin the history, and she um, uh, was trying to bring people together, and he had heard well the person that she wanted to contact had heard that she was ill. But when she reached out, she seemed to be just fine. And like toward the end, at the um, there was going to be a, a crucial meeting that was going to be held. And she didn't make that meeting because she had passed away. It was as though that was her final legacy. That was her she final legacy. To, to make that happen. Let me, let me share this too about this yes. book. Um, this book, what I appreciate about it, Miss Montgomery, is that it shares the good the bad and the ugly. Mm -hmm. It does not try to gloss over any. Nope. And uh, so, and I appreciate that so much because, you know, you mentioned in our conversation, even this, even this afternoon, that history is not worth telling if you're not willing to tell the full story. What is that? And, and you did that. I mean, I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, there are certain things that, oh, you, you sure you want to put that out in the laundry, but it's out there. Um, but it's and it's and it's good because you can learn from it mm -hmm. you, know, you can learn mm -hmm. from it and see where we've been and where you're going your church during the time of emancipation how's the school like one of the first freedom schools mm -hmm. not only during the day but in the evening so if you couldn't go in the day you could go at night there was no excuse you know for you and that's phenomenal your current pastor um, talked about a bit of vision that he had now this is of course toward the end of the book so I'm curious to know that as you had your recent service for MLK, which you guys celebrate, you've been celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. before it was a national celebration. Correct. For like over 40 years on his actual birthday. Correct. And the, this year, the first time it was virtual. Correct. So my question at the end of the book, it talks about vision that he has as far as um, making sure that as you go 21, good trouble, 2021 and beyond, what does that mean for you? What does, what does, what did your church talk about as far as, what does it mean to be going beyond? Where do you see yourselves going from here? From here, I, I see us, um, number one, we may be um, ready to, with Colon uh, Colonial Williamsburg, we're hoping that Colonial Williams Williamsburg will restore the church. That's number one. After they finish this archaeological dig that they're doing. Um, and we hope that we get another book published. We have been in touch with Tommy Bozier, the author of the book that you have, uh, Dawn. And um, he has retired. He's He was director of archives at Norfolk State University, and he has retired. So I talked to him 
uh, maybe two weeks ago on the phone. So he's excited about perhaps we're going to give him the first bid on writing the book since he did the first book. Uh, and if he accepts, we don't know yet what his intentions are. If he accepts, then we will move forward based on the archaeological information and the rebuilding of the original brick church on Nassau Street. That's what I'm hoping. Uh, if Colonial Williamsburg decides to um, do just the wooden church, that would be okay too, except the wooden church would not be able to include the artifacts that we have that we can bring to the table because they were done in the brick church. So in order for all of it to be the way it was and for any of our Nassau Street descendants to be able to look at that site and know that that's where they came from that community. And I'm talking where Colonial Williamsburg now is, that was their community. A lot of those people, some of those people remember, oh, when they walked down the street, oh, my house was over there, or my house was over there. And I had to walk just two blocks to get to the church. Yeah, one day I was out at the site, this, this woman came up to me and she was a white woman. She said to me, you know, I used to go to that church. I said, you did? When did you go to that church? She said, I used to go to the Sunday school and they used to let me in and I used to go up and sit in the balcony. I said, what? She said, I used to deliver papers when I was a little girl. So we did not know. I didn't know that, you know, and there are a lot of other people that didn't know that. But the children and the youth of the, of, of the church, some of them don't remember her. But she said she and her sister actually lived down the street and they would come over there for Sunday mornings and sometimes go upstairs to the balcony and listen to the service. So, you know, all of these kinds of new stories, like I said, are coming out. So therefore, uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to do that um, at new the old church at the original site. Well, right at the moment, the only thing that I'm that's holding everything up because uh, last week, week last, that's when some human remains were found. So here we're talking, how are we gonna, you know, we have to respect all of that. And one of the, one of the occupants, the last remaining African-American occupant on Duke of Gloucester Street, so when you come, when you're walking up and down, and that's one end is the Capitol and one end is the College of William and Mary's Wren building. That's a one mile walk. I've walked it too many times. She lived on the right side of the street coming from the college, closest to the Capitol. Her name was, we call the Ma Fanny Epps. She was 105, 103 years old, I think, when she passed away. Still working. They bought her house. The Rockefellers bought her house and they gave her life rights in the house. Now you're talking in the, um, in the 50s. They didn't expect this woman to live that long. She was the, she last, she lasted so long <laughs> that she was greeting the guest at Colonial Williamsburg. 
she stand out in front of her gate and she talked to those people about her experiences. And she explained to us that her relative was buried on that site. Nobody believed her. Now they found evidence that there are human remains on that site. So we have got to respect, first of all, the family. And we talked to Michael Blake, Blakey, who is a professor at the College of William & Mary. He's the one that did the New York project uh, with that uncovering um, those human re remains in New York. Well, Michael says it's, it may be possible for us to identify exactly who, but Mom Fanny already told us, why don't you believe this woman? She knew who was buried. That man was her relative. <laughs> she knew who was buried. She's already told us. Now that they found it, they don't want to believe it. They want to do this, that, and the other in terms of testing. But the woman told us. She told everybody that's passed by on Duke of Gloucester Street who, that her family was, some of her family, one, one or two people. We think two, but definitely one. And yeah, you got, you got to believe her. <laughs> I mean. I'll just say I'm inspired by your willingness to tell the whole truth, uh, good and bad, and look at all of it. Uh, as someone who's read through my church's history many times, it is not the whole truth. Mm. Um, and there are many things that have been avoided or glossed over. Some some hard truths are there, but not all of them. Uh, a lot of things are missing. And I wonder if you might have a word uh, for, our, for our people about the importance of history and black history and um, just looking at ourselves. And because we're trying to do part of this is for us as a white church to really look hard at ourselves and ask difficult questions about our own history. I will say that no matter what the history is, we have to tell it correctly. It's unfortunate that our country has been divided in terms of white church, black church. I mean, but the reason that it had to be that way is because blacks weren't allowed to go unless they were brought by the masters. Mm. Whites <laughs> did not accept us to just walk into their churches. You couldn't do that. You know, religion was, against, that was against the law, mm. you know? So you have to think about, um, you have to think about the whole story. And I think moving forward, I think that Americans have, not just Americans, but people around the world. When you think about this world, there are more people that look like me, mm -hmm. um, Ben, than look like you, okay? Around the world, okay? Right. America is a little bit different. Um, in the way we came, we as in um, people of African descent, how we came, uh, in the beginning to start this new land. And, and it's a wonderful place and, and it's got a lot of promise. It has a lot of promise because of people like you and because, you know, I'm not going to say people like me, they make me sound, I need to be more humble. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we, ha we have a lot of promise, okay? So there, there are ways that we can do it, but we must 
band together. If we are Christians, if we are people who look at humans as humans, um, I might have to give my blood uh, to you, Greg, someday, you don't know, to keep you alive. And my blood is just as important as yours. And you might have to give me, your, I don't know where it's going to be. But, right. you know, we're humans. And mm. as a human being, I feel as it is really important that we take care of each other. It is not you against me. It's not me against you. We should be taking care of each other. That's, that's what I truly believe. And that's where I hope that this process will go 2021 and beyond. What an amazingly eye-opening conversation that we had with Ms. Liz Montgomery of the First Baptist Church of Williamsburg. It was such an amazing moment for us to go deeper into their history and to learn how they're continuing to tell their story in the 21st century. If you would like to know more about their church or if you would like to purchase the book that Ms. Liz was referencing, it is entitled Since 1776, The History of First Baptist Church of Williamsburg, Virginia. They only sell copies through their church. So please contact me, Mia McLean, directly and we will be able to get you some copies very soon. Thank you so much, Ms. Liz, for sharing your knowledge and your time with us. Stay tuned as Dawn, Anthony, and I debrief and talk a little bit more about her research and how she came to discover this wonderful church partner. Dawn, thank you so much for the research that you have done to bring us this information. I have to say that, like I mentioned in our conversation with Miss Liz, <laughs> how much I just had made assumptions about what First Baptist Church was based on my previous experiences. So tell me how you came to know First Baptist Church of Williamsburg and their, their real identity, not our assumed identity of them. I will also agree with you in stating that I, I think you were not the only one who assumed that first the First Baptist Church of Williamsburg was an all-white congregation, which it was not. That came as a stunning surprise to me. Um, when the artist and theologians got together, so that's um, Greg and Helms and I came together, um, we asked if we could just do a tour of Myers Park Baptist. And um, Ben was faithful to do that. So um, he opened the doors and we were all masked and gloved up and walked about uh, the building. And as we walked, he began to share with us the origins even of Myers Park, specifically the architecture. Of course, he couldn't go into a great deal of detail because I understand that there was someone who did that kind of research once upon a time. But what he did share was that the interior uh, was based on a First Baptist in Rhode Island and the exterior on this um, First Baptist Church in Williamsburg. And so I was like, really? Really? And so from that, it uh, led me um, to research those particular spaces. And so I went to uh, Google when I got home and I began to do a little research regarding, first I started with Rhode Island and I saw the similarities there, but I also saw similarities regarding kind of the how they, operated as a First Baptist Church in Rhode Island, which is another conversation. 
and their thought process and, you know, regarding what was supposed to be in the sanctuary, what was not supposed to be in the sanctuary, how it was supposed to be decorated or not, or that it wasn't supposed to be ornate. And it's interesting that a lot of what they did in Rhode Island, um, things that have passed down over the years regarding thoughts, regarding how a sanctuary is supposed to be, has filtered down oftentimes into congregants and they don't even realize it. They just know that this is the way it's always been. And so this is the way we want it to be without even realizing even the context, even if it had a spiritual context once, once upon a time. And so um, I find that sometimes that residue still lies within a lot of people. Um, and it's more so about um, uh, not Christianity, but churchanity. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So that being said. So anyway, so then from there, I did a little research regarding um, First Baptist at Williamsburg. And um, when the church came up as the historic First Baptist Church of Williamsburg from 1776, of course, I am seeing wigs and, and you know, in my mind, that's what I knew was going to pop up. Like, oh, like going to a, a modern day museum where you, I don't see myself represented in most cases. And so I assumed this would be the case and it was not. So when I opened up there, you know, you go to the home site and I press the home button and all of a sudden on the screen, I looked like I was looking at a family reunion. And, um, and the people that were there were African-American. And then I dug a little further because I thought, okay, well, maybe that was, because oftentimes from what I have witnessed over time in a lot of congregations is um, white congregations may have left a certain area and then the black congregation will sometimes take on that church because it's not needed anymore, whether it be by white flight or just the um, the number, the congregation has expanded and they're looking to move elsewhere. So I thought, well, maybe that's what this is, but it wasn't the case. The case was that this church started as a Hush Arbor uh, in the 1700s. Um, and the history of this church, even though documented as a first Baptist church, it was called the first, the African Baptist church before the name was changed. Uh, and uh, so it was just insightful, enlightening, delightful. And I just wanted to dig further and reached out to the church. Thank you for that. I, I, I must say that uh, when you were talking a little bit earlier about the, the interior and the lack of ornateness because of that's the way it's supposed to be, that definitely resonated. We have a lot of those conversations right here at Myers Park about what belongs in the, in the sanctuary hall or what belongs in the church hall? Um, why is the pulpit the way, why does it look the way it looks, right? Um, but even in terms of outside, what's going on with the doors, what's going on with the steps? And so I'm curious a little bit about the architecture of the interior, which looks drastically different from ours. It has a more African-American church feel, you know, I, I think I remember red carpet or something like, you know, the, the typical like red yeah. carpet, few seats. Did you get a chance to do a little more digging regarding um, the interior of, of that place? Well, what was what was interesting about learning about the interior was not so much about 
maybe the lack of ornateness regarding details, but what was there in the church history, there was, there was a book, and I'll show you that in a moment, in the talk I, I kind of share that book. But what I find is the significant amount of challenges that the church has dealt with over time, even in raising funds to do things in the church. Whether uh, whether that was the church itself or even the parsonage that was connected to the church once upon a time. And because of the lack of resources um, from the community, it made it really difficult to do some of those things. And so what you see play out in the history is the um, as the as as Africans were newly freed from being enslaved you are seeing the economic, the access, what they, what they, what's accessible to them. Their lack of being able to do what they can for themselves plays out for what they can do in their church community. You understand what I'm saying? And so because of this, you don't see a whole lot that's done. In the mid forties, in the 1950s, uh, they add a daycare center to, uh, to really try to offset some of the costs and the needs for the community. And then um, uh, several years later, they have a, um, a youth center. And that was a big debate in the community, whether or not they needed a youth center or, um, and so of course what they, what they wound up doing was definitely having the youth center, but because they felt like they had a place for the children to go, there was not a lot to do in the community. Uh, so, there was a discussion of an annex at one point before the church was purchased from its first location on Nassau Street to its current location on Scotland Avenue. Um, the monies that were sent or were, they were asked at one point as a community to unite with two other churches in the area. Um, and in order to do this, the, the offer came from none other than John D. Rockefeller. <laughs> if you would, they, they were, this First Baptist was, did not have a lot of wealth. And so because they were constantly in a state of having to raise funds for repairs and things in the church, um, that seemed like a wonderful offer. And so to partner with other churches and to become one body was appealing, but that soon lost its um, fire and, and urgency to do something like that because one church was not able to send representatives to this meeting. And then First Baptist wanted to be the church that everyone became. And that was not going to happen because history was going to be lost from the other two. And so they kindly sent another letter back to Rockefeller saying, thanks, but no thanks. And so they were able to keep what they had, but it was just over the years, like every three or four years or five years, the constant need to do to have developments was an issue with the church, um, probably through the 1980s and the 90s before they began to have partnerships with the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation to do major funding for restoration of the old location um, and possibly this one. Uh, that they're currently in. Um, and so, yeah. 
it was interesting just hearing you talk about it and also hearing Miss Liz talk about it back, back when we had a conversation with her. It was having me think of a church in Alexandria, Virginia, also in Virginia, but more closer to the DC area um, called Alfred Street Baptist Church, which is said to be one of the oldest black churches in the country. Uh, but they were founded in, I think, 1802 or something. So this church is older than them. Um, but Alfred Street now has a huge budget. They, they, make, they get a lot of money. It's DC proper. So they have they're taken care of, but even in that taking care of nests, there are people still trying to kick them out, right? Because now there's a, a new population of people taking over Alexandria, wanting, they, they don't like that the church draws too much traffic on Sundays, right? They don't like the, you know, the, the, what, who the church brings into the neighborhood, even though hardly none of the members live there anymore because they can't afford it. And so I've just been thinking about the, the experiences that Black churches have to put up with in contrast with predominantly or white dominant church spaces. And I'm wondering if we could open up a little conversation about that here together. Um, ben and I did a podcast maybe a year and a half ago where we talked a little bit about the difference between black uh, Baptists and white Baptists and some of the other de denominations. What was some of the learning points for you as an artist in residence here at Myers Park Baptist looking at what this other church is facing? I have several thoughts. <laughs> One thing is that earlier in the year, I had the opportunity to join a, um, a, a conference, a virtual conference. And in this conference, um, one of the speakers shared something so insightful that, you know, you always know, but hearing this person say it. And the comment was that we have to decolonize our spaces. We have to, uh, in order to even know our identity. And so I say that to say that as this church began its journey to be the first Baptist church of Williamsburg, to see the influence of white churches that had been in their midst or as previous enslavers regarding what church is supposed to look like. And so um, I'll give you an example. In the in the history book of this church, they talk about the first generation of freed people that the pastors had the opportunity to serve and how difficult it was when family members who had once been enslaved were now coming back home because they had been sold away. And so when they would come back to their communities and family members who thought that they would never see one another again, now all of a sudden had two spouses. And watching the missionaries who had come down from the North after the church had reclaimed its space since it was, as I mentioned in the conversation, um, been, being a hospital and a place of lodging for Confederate soldiers, once they reclaimed their space, used it as a school during the weekdays, now having to be like a district court for the community and trying to figure out um, how to honor their congregants and watching oftentimes the church committees and boards really not honoring the victims of what had occurred. And so oftentimes they were excluding people from the church because they were 
looked at as maybe adulterous or whatever. I mean, even to the point of um, wives or uh, newborns who were born under the term of like nine months, if they were born at six months or eight months, then the, the thought was maybe you weren't honest and true in your relationship and they were excluded from the church. Now, in one case, one particular member who uh, had a child that was born two weeks shy of nine months, went to a white physician to get a letter stating that this could happen, that a child could be born within the context of marriage under an eight month period rather than nine months. And then they were given the, the, uh, the go ahead, the green light that it was okay. But again, under the guise of, or in the gaze of the whiteness, of if they say it's okay, then it's okay. And so I think oftentimes in the way that we worship, when we talk about differences in our communities, being understanding that oftentimes the traditional way of black worship may look different from a traditional way of white worship. It means it's different. It doesn't mean less than, nor does it mean barbaric. And oftentimes in a lot of black institutions, depending on who they are um, in certain denominations, they look at whether or not we worship in a certain way as being more acceptable um, or more comparable to a white church. And so sometimes you see far less, um, I guess, far, you see, you see more traditional European styles more than you would see the traditional black gospel styles. And this was an issue at First Baptist in the 70s when they had a youth choir. That's interesting. So it's sort of like this respectability politics is coming into play at all times. I mean, because even when I look at the building, the outside of the building of First Baptist Church Williamsburg, it gives you a very colonial they have to fit into a certain standard, right? The, the bricks have to match what the other bricks are doing and the windows, right? And so there's still this element of respectability, which is probably why Ben and I and others assumed that this was a predominantly white church or historically white church because of the way it looked. Um, and then there's this other piece that you brought up that I'm trying to pick up on, remember, um, this idea that the Black church had to be so many things. So when we think about our interior space, there wasn't, there's not as much of a focus on this needs to be pure, clean, white lines, nothing on the wall. I grew up in a church that was an old skating ring, and we had paint, paintings hanging from the wall. The, the Sunday school classes actually happened on the perimeter of the sanctuary area, uh, they would bring out those little rolling walls that, that would divide the classes, right? We didn't have an educational building. That was it, right? And so the this this building, this interior space has to be courthouse and that you were saying in this time period, an educational area. It has to be a, a hospital. It has to do and function in so many ways that we see a lot of traditionally white spaces having not, they don't have to function like that. Absolutely. Yeah. What I find is that what I found is that as I was reading much more about the history, that there may be more in common than there than there's difference as far as the um, the governance. 
the far as far as um, congregations having a lot more power, so to speak, than um, than the uh, than pastors and committees above them and their influence as far as what happened in the church. And so I appreciate the fact that as they began to share their history, they revealed all of this. They were not just trying to highlight all the good stuff. There was some really um, incredible, embarrassing moments that I would say that they probably feel like, ugh, but they needed to share the history. And I think it was important so that they can see so that they would not go over the same tracks to do the same things constantly uh, so that they were not forwarding the mission as far as what their mission statement would be as far as being able to be an influence in the community and moving forward as a community, as a black community. Okay, um, so First Baptist was a sanctuary for the poor, the sick, the downtrodden, and members of the persecu persecuted minority. But in order to keep its doors open, the church had to operate as a business. It had to meet its financial obligations by collecting dues, a minimum of 25 cents bi-monthly from every adult in the church. Able-bodied males were expected to pay 50 cents bi-monthly. Every 10 persons in the congregation was assigned to a leader who had the responsibility of seeing to it that the people in his group paid their dues. If the leader failed to perform these duties or if his group did not meet its quota, um, he was called before the monthly church meetings. So the idea of um, really paring down or making sure funds were um, in place and what would happen to congregants when they didn't, it was just really extraordinary to hear. So um, I, for, for many years, I would say, Mia, that I was not raised in the church. And I had to really back off of that statement because I realized, although I wasn't raised in the church, I was planted in the church that were my that my early beginnings was in a Baptist church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I would attend the church with um, a relative who didn't have children of her own. And so, but I was like three or four years old. That's where I remember my first church solo. But once I moved to Atlanta, Georgia at the age of seven or eight with my mom, I, I didn't attend, but the beginnings were there. So I did have some, I guess, memories of it. But when that particular relative passed away years later, I was able to um, get a lot of church history from, she was one of the founding members of that particular Baptist church there. And as a founding member, member, she was also involved, their church had a, had a, um, a credit union that was developed there uh, so that they could loan monies to congregation to congregational members because they couldn't get loans in the white community. They couldn't. And so a lot of those resources came from the house because it was the moral center of the community. And so over the years, as that began to loosen as far as uh, policies and legislation, then the, eventually they didn't have a, um, a credit union anymore. But uh, the need still stands for our community today. And this piece about how the needs shift and the needs change. Now, I mean, I think we still need those credit unions, but there are some things that may not be as important. So I'm thinking about the youth center aspect and how a lot of churches are saying, you know, back in the day when the kids had nothing to do, the youth center was, was 
at capacity and now kids can play sports with each other. They can do this and that on the weekend. So now we're having to figure out, do we rent this space out? Do we, you know, even some of the bigger churches, I think about Riverside in New York, um, this huge complex that I went to seminary across the street from, they are renting out their educational building to different organizations. And that would, that would have never been the case in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. And so it seems like even with the Black church being a, almost a pioneer in showing folks how to shape shift, right, in different seasons. You're right. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So, you know, I don't know, like you said, as churches today, and I don't know what's going to happen as communities come back together you know, mm-hmm. after um, uh, the pandemic, um, because they're, you know, even having to shape, uh, to shift and to move to an online format and um, just what's going to be happening in those communities financially when they come back. Um, and, you know, elders who don't have access to the internet, not able to retrieve sermons and because they're used to being able to be, they want to be in the building. And so for their safety, you know, Churches literally had to shut down because they knew that if anybody was going to show up, it was going to be the elders <laughs> who would show up in these communities and um, uh, at off, oftentimes at their detriment. Yeah. Yeah. What is something that um, you want people at Myers Park to understand about this connection, about deepening this relationship with this church that is you know, in so many ways, like us and unlike us, is there something that jumps out to you that you want us, our people to understand about First Baptist Church of Williamsburg? The first thing that came to my mind, Mia, was with the history of Black Americans and white Americans in this country, Black women were oftentimes given the responsibility as enslaved persons to nurse the children of their white enslavers. Mm. And so the nurture, the, the nutrients that they took, they, they came from the black women. Mm-hmm. When black women had the opportunity, they could have let these children starve and they did not. And so for many times our community has looked And we have been in circles and spaces observing white people, but they have never been in the space to observe us. Mm. Um, This is something that um, I think his name is um, Michael, Eric Dyson, he talks about that. Mm And, um, and when he talks about it, he says that it was, it was really interesting for them to perceive a, a president because they were all of a sudden not in the lead, they had to follow. And so I think it's important that Myers Park be in the position to learn from, to be nurtured by the history and the experience of um, First Baptist Church of Williamsburg in a very respectful, honoring manner. Um, And to see what they can learn, especially in the area of having a church historian and the area of having a church, a, a ministry of history in the church um, and how the church itself is was really on the forefront of um, being united and finding ways in how they could serve their community. 
I think that that's something that they can learn from and how this particular church honored Martin Luther King before there was a holiday, that we shouldn't need the government or the holiday uh, for the government to, to put something in place to say that Black Lives Matter. As a church, we need to lead the way, you know, or that indigenous voices, that transgender voices, that they matter and um, and how they can contribute to our spaces, you know, so. Many special thanks to Don Anthony, our artist and theologian in residence, for doing a deep dive on the First Baptist Church of Williamsburg, Virginia. To find out more about FBC Williamsburg, please visit their website. If you have any questions, feel free to email me at mmcclain at myersparkbaptistchurch.org. This is an Awakening Shalom podcast. See you soon.